Well, first of all, thank you, Josh, and thank you uh, for your weekly reminders to all of us about the opportunity to uh, to teach your children and to walk with them and to um, and to make disciples even among your friends and uh, and talk with them about the the truths that we believe and embrace. Uh, also, congratulations. I just want to say on behalf of the church, we're all shocked. <laughs> but not really. But uh, we are excited about that. And uh, we're thrilled for the two of you. Um, you, uh, you have, Proverbs says, uh, he who finds a good wife finds what is good and finds favor from the Lord. And uh, so you have. And that's a good thing. So we're all, all excited about that. Um, Karen and I are all excited about marriage in general. And in fact, we have a marriage-oriented small group that is starting at our house on Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday. And so two days from now, at 6 o'clock, our house up in Fawn Hills. Um, and if that sounds appealing to you, uh, understand this, that, it, that when we're talking about a marriage-oriented small group, what we're talking about is a group that is centered around what does God have to say about marriage and how does God use your marriage, if you are married, uh, in order to make you more like Jesus? How does marriage make you holy? Not just how does it make you happy, right? We all get married thinking that we're going to get, we're going to get married and we're going to be happy, and that's part of it. It certainly is God's blessing, but but also, it is one of God's means for making you holy, making you more like Jesus. And so, we're going to focus our energy on that. And so, if you're seriously dating, or you are married, uh, or you're engaged, uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer, and um, that, is, uh, that is filling up, but we are happy to take as many people as want to join us. So, uh, do let us know if you're coming. Uh, let us know also if you are going to need child care. We do not have little kid toys at our house anymore, uh, but we will try to um, to help you find uh, child care um, that, and we'll even help you uh, to finance it. So, um, so let us know about that. Uh, now, with that in mind, we're going to go back to uh, Jesus' parables, and we're going to look at three of them this morning. Uh, it's, it's just a few verses, but there are three parables in them, and the chapter we're going to be in is Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be, be looking at three parables beginning in verse 44. And as you make your way there, I want to tell you a quick story. I love this story. How many of you all know who I'm talking about when I say the, say the name Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson was a blues guitarist in the 1930s. He is known to history as the king of the Delta blues singers. And uh, probably, uh, you know, down to this day, uh, guys like Robert Plant and Eric Clapton and others look to Robert Johnson and they say, this man truly was the greatest blues guitarist maybe that ever lived. But the story goes that Robert Johnson didn't even know how to play guitar, but he went off uh, one night 
into the darkness down in the Mississippi Delta, and he met the devil at the crossroads. And the devil tuned his guitar and handed it back to him, and in exchange for his soul, Robert Johnson learned how to play the guitar. Right? I don't believe that story, because first of all, the devil does not have, according to the Bible, authority over anybody's soul. He is not, after all, the ruler of hell. He is his eventual chief resident. Uh, And so he has no authority over anybody's soul. But it does illustrate the reality that many people, many people, are willing to trade in their entire life for something that is not worth the trade. Anybody willing to swap their soul for some guitar lessons? Not me. Well, I wanted to play the guitar, but I was only willing to pay somebody a couple hundred bucks to teach me, right? And it didn't take. <laughs> and so, apparently, guitar abilities skip at least one generation. Um, but, but would you be willing to trade your soul for guitar? And I think it's obvious that we wouldn't do that, right? But many, many people trade their entire life, all their eternal destiny, for something much less. So, think about this question. What would you give your life? What would you give up your soul in order to possess? Because that is the point a part of the parables we're going to look at today. If you have your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 13, I'd like you to look with me uh, beginning in verse 44. And if you're able and willing, you would stand in honor of God's Word as I read. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, may we heed Your Word May we have ears to hear it. May we, in our hearts, respond to it in the way that your Spirit is prompting us. Father, may we not trade the passing pleasures of this life for that which is of eternal value of the kingdom of heaven. Father, help us today to understand what the Spirit is saying to you to the church. And that having understood it, to respond appropriately to it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please be seated. Well, if you look at the text carefully, you'll see that Jesus tells three parables in this section of Scripture and that He introduces all of them with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Which in literary terms is a form of comparison known as a simile. Some of you all remember that from English class. Uh, that something is like something else. And the introduction in each case is followed by an analogy that Jesus draws between the kingdom of heaven and the parable that He tells. And the first two parables, you'll notice, are very short. They occupy three verses combined. And both of them are similar to one another in that they speak of someone who finds a great treasure and gives up everything else they possess in order to gain that treasure. If you look at the first one with me now, the whole parable is there in one verse, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Now you might think the details of this are pretty weird. After all, who buries treasure in a field? And by the way, what is this guy doing wandering about in a field he obviously does not own? I mean, isn't he trespassing here? What, what is going on with this story? Well, in the ancient world, there weren't banks of the sort that we have now. No one had a fireproof vault, uh, you know, bolted to the floor or built into concrete walls somewhere. You didn't have that. There were banks, but they didn't have those kinds of resources. And by the way, even with a bank today that has those kinds of things, do you know what separates uh, being robbed at the bank and not being robbed? Time, patience, and tools. That's it. You can get into any vault, any safe, anywhere if you have those three things. I have a, my dad has a neighbor who sells bank safes. That's one of the things that he, he sells. It's bank safes, vaults, all this kind of stuff. And he said, he, dad wanted to buy a safe from him. And he said, well, what do you want? He said, what do you mean? He says, well, how much time do you want? Because I can sell you a 10-minute safe, a 20-minute safe, a 2-hour safe, a 4-hour safe, but I can't sell you an unbreakable safe. The burglar gets in and has enough time and the right tools. He's getting in. So, in the ancient world, what you did whenever there was danger is you would take your valuables and you would take them out uh, like Captain Kidd or Jean Lafitte or one of these guys. You know, you dig yourself a hole somewhere and put your valuables in it. And then when the danger had passed, hopefully you were still alive, you could come back and dig up your stuff. Right? And the ancient world is a violent place, and so there's all kinds of you know, invading armies and uh, marauding groups of people and so forth. And so you went out and you hid your treasure someplace no one would look for it in a field. Hopefully you kept a, mar a, a map that had the X that marks the spot where your stuff is. You're not having to dig up you know, 15 acres to find your possessions afterwards, right? But nonetheless... Uh, apparently, in this case, 
guy has hidden his treasure in a field and then either died before he was able to come back and reclaim it or forgot where it was, but someone else walking through sees it. Why is he walking through? Well, again, in Israel, uh, according to the Mosaic Law, you had the opportunity uh, to walk through other people's fields. That was specifically permitted. And if you were hungry, you could harvest as you walked along you could pick grain or you could pick an apple off the tree and eat as you walk. You couldn't take a basket with you. Uh, and you couldn't put a sickle to your neighbor's grain, but you could pick you know, a head of wheat off and you could brush it in your hand and eat it. Uh, in fact, the Gospels describe that Jesus and his disciples did this. At least on one point, when they were hungry, they walked through someone's field of standing grain and picked a little grain to eat. And that was allowed. So there's not, it's not the sense of trespassing in the way that, um, that we think of it today. So presumably this guy is walking through someone's field and he sees this treasure. Well, if you were walking along and you saw him, and you know, don't think of it like a bag of money. Think of it like you see this bag and it's full of gold and silver coins, because that would have been the ancient equivalent. You see part of the corner of it and you just go, my goodness, that's a bag of coins. This is a big bag. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to do what this guy did, if you're smart. You're going to bury it back up. Right? You're going to cover it back over, and then you're going to go down to the um, to the assessor's office and find out who owns that field, and then you're going to gather whatever resources that you need to gather to buy that field so that the treasure that is there is yours, legally. Are you going to tell all your friends and neighbors? Yes after you buy the field, right? Because you want to get a good deal on this. You don't want to bid the price up that the treasure of the Sierra Madre is hidden out in this guy's, out in this guy's back 40, right? You're going to go legally acquire it and then take advantage of the treasure that is there. The second parable that's found in verses 45 and 46 is very similar to the first in that in both cases, there's a treasure that is found that the person who finds it sells everything in order to gain. But there are some differences in the second parable that show us that Jesus is, is taking a step up here in the comparison a little bit. First, you'll notice that in the, the first parable, the hidden treasure, the person who finds it isn't really searching for it. They just seem to happen along on it. His actions after that are very purposeful, but there's no indication he was actively looking for it or had any idea it was there in the first place. But in the second parable, you'll notice that the merchant is actively seeking for fine pearls. And he found one of great value. And related to that, you'll notice the difference between how the man is described in the first and of the second. What's the job of the first guy who found the treasure hidden in the field? Who knows? He's just 
He's just a random guy. The uh, second guy, though, his job is identified. He's a merchant. And he is presumably in the pearl business because that's what he's spending his life searching for. Which means probably he has, as a pearl merchant, he would have a lot of other pearls. But when he finds one of great value, then all of the other good things that he already has, he gives up in order to gain one great thing. Now I can't really relate to this exactly. I've never been wealthy enough to be in the jewelry business. Uh, you have to have some working capital to that, right? But I can understand this a little bit. It would be like if you were a car collector, and you know you had a, you had a you know an original '65 Mustang that was restored, and you had you know maybe a '69 Dodge Charger, and uh, you know maybe you've got a Model A you've been working on and whatever, and then all of a sudden. A 53 Corvette comes up. And you go, ooh, I'd really like to have that. It's all original. There weren't that many made. What are you about to do? You're about to sell the car collection to gain the 53, right? Why? Because this is an object of great value. And you will have so much fun. So much fun, right? You want to gain, you want to trade in the treasure you already possess in order to gain something of even greater value and worth. What's the point of these, these parables? The, the, the point is there in how they're both introduced. The kingdom of heaven is life. And Jesus is telling us, in other words, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is worth sacrificing everything else that you have to gain it. Even if you are sacrificing other good things, other treasures, in order to enter in and obtain it. And the idea here then is that you give up all in order to obtain the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in fact, uh, you will enter God's kingdom if you sacrifice all these things for it. And that's the point of the last parable, the parable of the net. Here, conveniently, Jesus not only tells the parable, he explains it. Always helpful if you're a preacher. You've got to tell people what, what somebody meant to have the inspired explanation right there in the text for you. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the point of comparison? A net that catches every kind of fish. 
A fishing rod uh, allows you to be fairly discriminatory about what you keep. Amen? You catch one, you reel it in. I went out fishing uh, with one of the guys from church here a few weeks ago. We caught a variety of fish. We caught carp, and we caught channel catfish, and we caught some others, right? And you look at them and you go, hmm, catfish, taking that home, yum, right? Carp, hmm, cut the line, <laughs> right? Uh, you know what the secret to fixing a carp is? You soak a cedar board and you, um, and you put it on your grill uh, and then you put the fish on top. And when it's done, you eat the board. <laughs> but, but, but in any case, with a fishing rod, you can throw away the bad ones and keep the good ones. Amen? But when you have a net, you catch fish of every kind. And there is no throwing them back. You're not going to swim off to live another day. You're going to throw the bad ones into the garbage. And you're going to keep the good ones. And so, when you're going to sort them out when the net comes ashore. You're going to keep the tilapia, maybe. Or the bass. Or the crappie. Or the walleye. And you're going to throw out the buffalo. And the carp. And the gar. And the suckers. And what's the point? The point is that not everyone will enter God's kingdom. Those who are evil will be separated from the righteous and will be thrown out and put into what Jesus here calls the fiery furnace and the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where is that place? It's what the Bible in Revelation chapter 20 calls the lake of fire. And which Jesus, you may be interested to know, warns people against more times than anyone else in the rest of Scripture combined. Jesus has more to say about hell than He does about heaven. And He says, you do not want to go here. This is the place like a fiery furnace. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth there. It's like being thrown into a fiery furnace except that you are never, repeat that word with me, never, never consumed by the fire. According to the Scripture, fire never goes out and your soul is never consumed by it. You do not want to go there. And the reality is there will be a separation, Jesus says, a great sorting out of the wicked from the righteous with the righteous gathered home to God's kingdom and the evil thrown into the place of fiery judgment from which there is no escape forever. And if that's true, and it is, then it is essential, amen, essential that we determine how to be on one side of that sorting rather than the other. The angels are going to do the sorting. And if I'm one of these fish, and I will be, then I want to be darn sure that I'm a bass or a walleye instead of a carp. Amen? 
And to answer that question, how do I determine who, which is which, who is who, I need to dig a little deeper and I need to understand the point of all these parables together. And adding them all up, Jesus is telling us something very important. He's telling us that entry into the kingdom of heaven is a treasure that is worth everything else. It is worthy of everything else in your life to obtain that. And He's also telling us why. Because if we do not gain entry into the kingdom of heaven, then what awaits us instead is a terrible and eternal judgment. And so that points us back to the beginning and demands that we answer a very essential, in fact, the only important question that has to be answered by every single person. And that is, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? How do I ensure that when the day of judgment comes and the great sorting out of people into righteous and evil, with the righteous going into the kingdom and the evil eternally cast out and judged, that I will be accounted among the righteous. Well, there is one word that determines that, and that is the word Jesus. And how we respond to Him. Because men and women, ultimately, Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. Jesus is the pearl of great value. He is the one treasure that is worth spending everything else in your life to obtain. He alone is worth giving your life for. Whenever the Scripture addresses the topic of how to obtain eternal life, how to enter the kingdom of heaven, the answer is simply this. Are you ready? I'll give you three words. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. But whenever the Bible uses these words, it means that what you are doing is relying on, trusting in the person of Jesus Christ and His accomplishments on the cross and in the resurrection for you and your sin and in giving you new life as a gift. And when it says believe, it's not mere intellectual assent to certain facts about who Jesus is and what He has done. Uh, the book of James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so Jesus here is raising the stakes and making it clear that what is necessary is to believe in the sense of making a heart decision that says to Jesus, all that I have, all that I am for you. I hold nothing back. I am utterly reliant on you and what you have done for me in the cross and the resurrection for my salvation. That is saving faith. 
That is belief in Jesus. It is to stake it all. I'm not a poker player. I don't have a poker face. But I understand. Seriously, y'all would take all my money. Right? <laughs> um, but I understand this concept. That when you have a good hand, you push it all in. And that is what Jesus demands. He says, believe in me and enter into the kingdom of heaven. That we say to him, I'm all in. I'm all in. I rely on you. I put my trust in Jesus Christ to save me from my sin and the death I deserve and the hell I should go to. Because men and women, there is nothing in me, not one thing, that merits God's favor. Not one thing. Not one thing about which I can say to God, you're welcome. He doesn't owe me anything except death, judgment, and hell. But He offers me everything. If you were walking through a field and you saw $7 billion worth of gold coins hidden in a fence row, what would you do? Be like, I don't know how much money that field is worth, but I'm buying that. I mean, maybe there's more in there than what, what I've seen. Right? I'll be excavating the whole thing to find all the riches that might be there. I'm going to put it all on Jesus. And Jesus is telling us that very thing, that counting all things lost for the sake of Christ is completely worth it. Completely worth it. Just as you would happily trade every dollar in your checking account, all of your life savings, all your investment accounts, all your cars and houses and whatever it is that you have collected at home of all your stuff, if someone said, I will give you a billion dollars in exchange for everything you have right now, how many of you would make the swap? I definitely would. In fact, I would be like, where's the money? <laughs> right? Yeah, you got your checkbook handy? Uh, I'll take that trade today. Right? And Jesus, in the same way, is worth it no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Now, I'm not telling you that if you follow Jesus, that you will definitely have to literally lay your life down to imprisonment, to martyrdom, to suffering, to death. But I'm saying we shouldn't take it off, off the list of possibilities. Rick mentioned I'm going to be going to a very remote part of India, and that's true. I'm going to be going to a place where there literally are tigers and sleeping in a hut in a sleeping bag, I think, for two weeks. Okay? Um, this does not make me comfortable. I'm going to have to get there and the only people that I know are the people who meet me at the end of 
two different flights. The first one is 12 hours, and then I get off and I get somehow the next day to another airport, and then I go four and a half hours to the east and hang out in the jungle at the foot of a giant mountain um, for two weeks and probably don't have any communication with the outside world. Does this scare me? Yes. Am I going anyway? Yes. Why am I going? Because Jesus is calling. Jesus might send you to be a missionary somewhere where you are very uncomfortable. When I had, when I told the Lord I wanted to go train pastors, I had envisioned someplace, you know, like Paris. You know, like I'd be in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, eating a baguette, having some brie, maybe, you know, eating some really good chocolate. Um, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there, right? Where are you going? India, to the back of beyond, to places where even Indians have never been. Oh, wow. This is a crazy thing, right? Jesus might send you to be a missionary one day to Iran where there is a live possibility that you will be arrested and imprisoned and very likely beheaded if you go and preach Jesus to His people. Jesus might call you to a ministry where if you add up all of the hours that you put in, you are working less than, for, for less than minimum wage. Jesus might call you to a job in ministry that pays minimum wage to start with. You might lose family relationships to follow Jesus. Men and women, you might be called to live in the state of Illinois, even though you hate the winter here. You might be called to follow Jesus through infertility. You might have to trust Him through the fact that you cannot have children of your own despite wanting them desperately. You might have sexual desires that you have to master over a lifetime of being a permanently celibate single man or single woman and never get the blessing of marriage that you want. You might be called to lose your job because they require you to endorse what the Word of God forbids. All these things are possibilities. You will definitely, if you decide to follow Jesus, be called to a life full of sacrifices. You will definitely be called to sacrifice your comfort to make the Gospel known to one of the thousands of people surrounding where you live. You know this? You may not know this. This church, Chillicothe Bible Church, one of the largest churches in this town, There are 6,000 people in this community of which I think roughly 500 are in one of the local churches on any given Sunday morning. You know what that leaves? 5,500 people who, apart from the Gospel coming to them and them, being, them believing it, are going to wind up in that fiery furnace at the end of the at the end of the age. 
Does sharing the gospel make us uncomfortable? Yes. But our love ought to remind us that there is a fiery furnace awaiting those who do not know Jesus. And if someone's going to go to hell, it ought to be, as Spurgeon said, leaping over our bodies while we hold on to their knees, begging them not to go and to believe in Jesus instead. No matter how uncomfortable life gets, no matter what sacrifices following Jesus entails, do you know what this Scripture reminds us? They're worth it. They're worth it. They're worth it because in the end, Jesus is the only thing that is worth it. And if we put our trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us and in His resurrection to new life, then we will gain despite everything. We come out way ahead because we gain the one thing that is worth your life, which is entry into the kingdom of heaven alongside the Savior and the King of heaven, Jesus Christ. And if that's true, and it is, then something else is really important for us. It means that we need to not worry too much about the things that we treasure here and now. We need to stop worrying about comfort and about what other people will think of us if we share the gospel. A fact about the fact that, well, well, I might lose my reputation, I might lose my job, I might not even be able to keep the job I really want. And we need to get busy as disciples of Jesus, making disciples of Jesus like He commanded. Is that time-consuming? Yes. Is that demanding? Yes. Are there things we need to stop worrying about? Yeah. We need to stop obsessing over politics, for one thing. And I'm as guilty as anybody. We need to stop looking for deliverance from Washington or Springfield and get active in pointing people to Christ. Because I don't know if you've checked the character or the program of the people in either one of those locations. But deliverance ain't available from there. You know where it is? From Jesus Christ who died and rose and offers new life to everyone who believes in Him. I want to stop spending so much energy on making sure my retirement is secure and spend my energy making sure that other people's eternal destiny is secure. Amen? Bottom line, Jesus Christ is worth giving your life for. He is the one treasure worth everything in your life to obtain. And if you have to give up some things that you hold dear, so be it. They aren't worth it anyway that Jesus is. No one and nothing else gains you Christ and entry into His kingdom. And so if you're thinking, I don't know, you might have to 
might have to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus, let me assure you, you will. That's not really the question. The question is, is the sacrifice worth it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. As you put your trust in Jesus, you will gain Him. The greatest treasure that there is. And beyond that, after this life is over, you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you will be with Him forever and ever. Let's pray. God, our Father, these are simple little stories. But they cut deep. They get down into where the bone and marrow are linked. And they call us, in some cases, to repentance. To realizing that we have prioritized other things more than we have treasured the Lord and His way and His will for our life. And Father, they make some of us realize that we don't have Jesus in the first place. He's not what we've treasured. We've treasured money or a job or our, our desires of our body, the approval of our friends. And Father, at the end of the, the day, these are like trading our soul for guitar lessons. They are foolish and empty. And they do not deliver eternal life. Father, wherever we find ourselves, I pray that everyone among us would realize that Jesus is the treasure. And if they have not yet believed, that right now they would be putting their trust in Him, that they would simply come and say to you, Father, I'm a sinner. And I've got nothing that is worth a trade of eternal life. Father, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. And I'm asking that you would give me eternal life, something I can only receive and never earn. And Father, if any of us out there are realizing we need to repent because we have treasured other things ahead of Christ, Father, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Realize that we have put things in places they do not belong. And bowed down and served that which is not God. When the living God has saved us and bought us. Father, help us to repent where we need to repent and seek you afresh as recipients of your grace and mercy on an ongoing way. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.